0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas. Articles, videos and podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers
0: on today's biggest ideas. This week we're discussing consciousness and the mind. Joining us is philosopher, author of I'm Not a Brain, Marcus Gabriel, who challenges scientific complacency and argues for a different view of the self, the mind, and human freedom.
1: You might say that the brain plays an important role in generating the perspective, but if there's a difference between the brain and what the brain generates or what the brain produces, then you see you have this problem now, the mind-brain problem. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Marcus Gabriel. So typically, the, uh, the so-called philosophy of mind starts roughly with the following kind of assumption. Okay. So there is a way things are. Uh, the way things are includes us being certain animals endowed with, for instance, a central nervous system. Okay? Let's simplify the brain bit in mind and brain and say there is such a thing as the brain. Okay? So that's already a big posit because we don't know how the nervous system hangs together in such a way that we could point to a thing called the brain and say what the brain does. The brain is not at all by current standards, something like the liver or the heart. You could say the heart is the kind of thing that pumps blood. Okay? So you can't say, on the basis of what we actually know about uh, the nervous system, that the brain is the thing which does such and so, okay? like with the heart. We are nowhere near that for whatever reason. Okay? so uh, I'm already incredibly simplifying just to motivate the idea of a philosophy of mind and a mind-brain problem by granting the term the brain, okay? So, but that would be a different talk where I would be talking about the brain. So we assume there's such a thing as the brain. That's a big assumption. So I just wanted to flag that this is a huge assumption, nothing as simple as it sounds. But now things get worse, so we grant that. So, uh, and now the question is, Okay, so the brain is part of reality. There are bosons and uh, fermions and moons and galaxies and whatever else you think there are. And there's also the brain, fine, okay, in this picture. But what about, you know, now I'm using some vocabulary, the first-person perspective. What about the way reality appears to you? So there's reality, but there's the way reality appears to you. And some such distinction has to be all right. Because, for one thing, we often make mistakes. We don't make mistakes all the time. Otherwise, we would never make mistakes. If we made mistakes all the time, it wouldn't make sense to wonder whether we make mistakes. So we get lots of things right. But we make mistakes. So the way things are and the way things seem to be is not the same. Okay? Otherwise, we would be infallible. Just go by... Uh, the seemings, and you're fine, okay? So there's distinc- this distinction. Now, how can you account for the way things appear to you when all you know about reality is that it is different, potentially different, from the way things appear to you? Let me give you some concrete substance okay, for this problem, okay? uh, a, a more impressionistic version of it. Chocolate tastes a certain way to you. So, there's chocolate in reality. You can produce chocolate, and so forth, we know how to do it. And then there's chocolate, you buy the chocolate. And that's the reality, there's chocolate. Now, this reality appears to you in a certain way, and depending on what state you're in, it can appear differently. It tastes much better if you smoke a joint before eating it, and it tastes much worse uh, if you suffer from a certain disease, and so forth. So, we know that there's a difference between the chocolate and the way the chocolate appears to us. But where on earth is the way the chocolate appears to you? Now, you might say, well, it's in my brain. There's the chocolate, here's my brain, and the brain is somehow the way the chocolate appears to me. But that's mysterious, or it seems mysterious, because if you look at the brain, all you see is Neurons doing certain things, and other cells, of course. There are cells and so forth. Uh, so there are all these cells, they do certain things. You don't see, as it were, uh, the taste of chocolate. It also doesn't help to lick the brain, uh, because the brain doesn't taste like chocolate. So if the brain represents chocolate, the taste of chocolate, it's not that the brain tastes like chocolate. Uh, so where on earth is the taste of chocolate? Uh, so now we have a grip on the mind-brain problem. Okay, where's the taste of chocolate? Or where's my mental image of you? You are there, I know where you are, but you seem to me to be a certain way. I see you from here, you see me from there. I have my perspective, you have your perspective. Where on earth is the perspective? You might say that the brain plays an important role in generating the perspective, but if there's a difference between the brain and what the brain generates or what the brain produces, then you see you have this problem now, the mind-brain problem. If there's not just the brain, then how on earth can there be seemings? Okay, So that's the mind-brain problem, roughly. And then philosophy has worked out different solutions, and I think they're all equally bad. So let's just run quickly through them and uh, get a sense for what's problematic, okay? Those uh, are not going to be knockdown arguments at each uh, stage, but you'll see that it's hard to make sense of the views. So, the first position that you could come up with is identity theory. You could just say, well, look, the mind is the brain. There's just the illusion, there's some kind of illusion here uh, that makes you believe that the mind is not just the brain. Okay? All there is, in reality, is the brain. And the brain, somehow, we don't know how, just is the first-person perspective or some part of the brain. Okay, so there, there's just one thing in reality, namely the brain. There isn't any mind in addition to the brain. All there is is the brain. However, it doesn't seem this way. It's not, again, it's not obvious. Otherwise, we would have discovered this by just looking at reality. So there seems to be a difference, again, between the mind and the brain, and that is just the seeming we are trying to explain. You, don't get, uh, uh, you can't destroy the seeming by just claiming there isn't any such seeming. So the identity theory fundamentally has the problem that it just stipulates itself into a solution by not trying to address the problem. Okay? So it's basically identity theories uh, always tend to be denials of the problem. So they kind of accept the premises and then say, but I don't care. They're just identical. So identity doesn't say a lot. Identity, what is identity? Well, identity is the minimal relation that every object bears to itself. That's what identity is. So if the mind is the brain, then what you're really saying is the brain is the brain. You're saying there isn't any mind in addition to the brain. That's what you want to say. So what you have said is the brain is the brain. But that shouldn't be surprising. So the identity theory either either says the mind is not quite the brain, Huh? so there's uh, 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 not, not really or, or not quite the brain, or you're saying the mind is the brain, but then you're saying the brain is the brain. You're not saying the mind is the mind. You're saying the brain is the brain. If you say the mind is the mind, then you're a so-called subjective idealist. Then you're saying the brain is a construction of the mind. They're really, you know, the brain is identical with the mind in the other direction, as it were. Okay? So there are two directions. You know, the, the, the Brain direction, mind direction. Both are wrong. Okay? So that's, that's the problem with identity. Also, what on earth is identity? So that's, uh, that would be a longer talk, but if it's just a minimal relation that any object bears to itself, then you see that uh, it doesn't make sense to say that the mental seemings or so-called consciousness or the mind just is the brain. Okay? So that's bad. Identity is pretty bad. So what, what other options uh, do you have? Okay? So no one typically wants to be a dualist and say there are two kinds of things in reality, the mind and the brain because this creates all sorts of mysteries. How can they interact, and uh, how on earth can I influence the mind by influencing the brain? Right? How, can I, how can taking LSD influence my mental states if there are just two kinds of things in reality? And if there are two kinds of things in reality, the mind and the brain, then what on earth is the relation between the two? Dualism is just saying there are two kinds of things. Identity says there's a relation between the two kinds of things. The following relation. There aren't two kinds of things. That's not a good relation between two kinds of things. It's saying there isn't any. Now, dualism basically is the same view, paradoxically, because it says there is no relation between the two. Again, you don't get a relation because to say that there are two things is not an account of the relation between the two. So, Theresa May and I are two things, but that, that doesn't tell you what the relation is that holds between Theresa May and I, apart from us being two. That's not a relation between two things. So, dualism doesn't say anything. Okay? It just sounds like a maneuver, but it isn't any. So, that's why philosophy has tried to come up with better views in this neighborhood. So we have identity and dualism. They don't really say a lot. So here's something very prominent, uh, and many people help themselves to this language. They say something like this. For instance, John Searle has defended this in philosophy, uh, but it's a widespread assumption. Okay, let's call this the production view. On the production view, um, the brain, or a part of the brain, produces the mind or mental states. So that's the production view. Now I told you what the relation is between mind and brain. It's not identity, it's not duality, it's production. Uh, So the the brain produces the mind. Certain uh, activities in the brain produce certain emotional states in me, for instance. That's why you can influence my mental states by influencing my brain. Now that sounds like a view, okay? Now here's a problem. If the brain produces the mind, or if a part of the brain produces a part of the mind, yeah, then you get the following problem. Again, you have two things. Now you have the mind, which isn't identical, because you don't want to say that if A produces B, they are identical. Okay? There are cases where something can produce itself, but the view now is not that because it's not an identity theory the view is not that the mi- the brain is just the brain and the brain produces the brain that's not the view the view is the brain produces the mind but if the brain produces the mind and the brain is not identical to the mind then now you have two things in reality again the brain and the mind and now i want to know what is the relation between the two then you'll say production okay interesting but how does this work so what on earth explains that something that is not identical to the brain is produced by the brain what's the mechanism for instance and what and now this is where things get interesting and we're moving closer to the second more positive part of my talk what on earth is the mind if the brain produces it but it, they are not identical then what on earth is it right and you don't want to say it's a ghost or an immortal soul because no one has ever held the view, as far as I know, that the brain produces an immortal soul. How does it do it, right? I mean, the brain is mortal. And then how does a mortal brain produce an immortal soul? Something, you know, typically the idea of an immortal soul is that no one produced it. It's eternal, right? I I mean, there there would be a view which is not defended by anyone, as far as I know, according to which an immortal soul is immortal from, you know, uh, the beginning of its inception. So an immortal soul has to be born. At first, a baby is born, then the brain gives birth to an immortal soul, which then goes on living forever. I don't know of any religion which defends this, but probably some American evangelical tribe in the Bible Belt holds this view you know, uh, Scientology or whatever. Uh, um, But that's a weird view, okay? So, usually when you think you have an immortal soul, your view is much more like uh, you have always existed, then somehow you got into this body, and then you die, and you're, you know, elsewhere again. So, that's usually the view. But, you know, you see, it's a crazy view to think that, uh, uh, without saying what the mind is, that the brain produces it. Okay, so production doesn't help you either. So in order to solve this problem, philosophers have invented uh, technical concepts. Uh, I will not go a lot into this because they're not very helpful. So the best solution which was discussed for uh, uh, almost a decade is so-called supervenience. And, but supervenience at best means something like this, a fancy philosophy term. But at best it means something like this. If there's a change in the order of the mental, you know, like you're not hungry and then you're hungry, say. You know. <laughs> so there's, there's a change in the mental order. Uh, And uh, whenever there's a change in the mental order, there's a change in the physical order. That's supervenience. But that doesn't help you, because uh, uh, um, it might be the case that the changes in the physical order are products of changes in the mental order, or they are identical, or one produces the other, etc. So you see, supervenience, again, is just saying there are two kinds of things. Uh, and we don't know what the relation between the two is, therefore we invent a term, supervenience. We, uh, give the, the, the term is supposed to pick out whatever answer we are looking for, but it doesn't give you the answer, so again, no real action. Uh, so, and this is typical for the mind-brain problem. That's why many people believe, scientists uh, included, that there is a hard problem of consciousness. According to what uh, those people believe, the actual formulation of David Chalmers is quite different from what people often ascribe to it. But according to what, you know, like uh, uh, a typical way of uh, uh, talking about this is well, the hard problem is just this we don't know the answer to the problem. And we will never know the answer to the mind-brain problem. And I think this is correct, but not because it's so hard to figure out, but because it's an ill-formulated question. You'll also never know the answer to the following question, you know. What did do when he <laughs> You know, like, try to answer this one. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I didn't get, gi- you know, this is an ill-formulated question. This was basically nonsense. And I think that the mind-brain problem is, at the end of the day, just a bunch of nonsense. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Okay, so let's come to a more positive uh, view. So who or what are we then if we aren't our brains? Okay, so if if there's this ill-formulated question uh, uh, to which an answer would be that we are our brains, but the question is ill-formulated, okay? So what are we then? So what is this whole thing about? And uh, here's just an interesting side remark which gets to to the view that I want to defend. Um, The term, the mind, the English word, the mind, does not have an exact equivalent in contemporary German. In 18th century German, there was something which worked almost like the English term, the mind, gemüt, but no one uses this anymore, and it also doesn't mean the mind anymore to the extent to which you would even use it. So, the mind is not an obviously referring term, it's not like obviously we know what the mind is and the question is what its relation, is its relation to the brain. We don't even know exactly what the mind is apart from meaning descriptions ex- to the term that in particular philosophers have offered. So the term the mind, I think, is an artifact of uh, English-speaking philosophy and a misguided one on top of that because it's um, <clears throat> a consequence of trying to make sense of nonsense. Okay? It's part of a long nonsense poem. Uh, the mind. So I, I never really understood what that is. Yeah. There's a better term in German, so now I'm playing the German philosopher, and, uh, 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 but, uh, uh, but now I'm giving sense to it. Okay? So the, the better word is geist, uh, and a way of translating this is roughly human-mindedness. So here's how this works. Okay. So humans are in the peculiar situation, and we are all in this situation right now together and in a self-conscious way, in the peculiar situation of wondering how we blend in with non-human reality. So we know there's non-human reality, at least I don't doubt it, and non-human reality includes, you know, like uh, galaxies and uh, forces. Uh, I happen to think it includes numbers, but be that as it may, whatever is part of non-human reality, something is, right? Right? And then there are organisms, some organisms we think of as human and some other organisms uh, not, you know, like snakes and dolphins. So there are different kinds of animals and then non-animal entities. And then there's the human animal, right? Now, how on earth do we fit into this landscape? Science, natural science, is part of an answer to this question because we know that we have evolved uh, in the, you know, there's an origin of the species, we have a theory for that, right? We know that uh, uh, our body, among other things, uh, contains certain molecules and it can only contain these molecules because the forces of nature are a certain way and physics helps us to decipher this, etc., right? So, we are giving an answer as we practice science, among other things, to the question, how we blend in with the rest of what there is. Now, here's my definition now of human-mindedness. Human-mindedness is the capacity to lead a life in light of your answer to the question how you blend in. Okay, So, human-mindedness is the capacity to lead a life in light of your answer to the question how you blend in. Now, this, let me give you uh, examples of this. So, imagine you believe you have an immortal soul. Uh, Then you will do certain things. So, imagine you have an immortal soul and you think God is constantly observing you. So, imagine, uh, you know, hopefully the great TV show, the peep show. Now, imagine you're like in the peep show and, uh, and God is constantly listening to you, right? So, whatever is happening in your mental life, God is also there. Okay, so you are an immortal soul, and God is testing your thoughts. That would be a nightmare for me, so w- one more reason not to believe that I have an immortal soul. you know if I had one, I would want to get rid of it right uh, uh, that's the wise thing to do you know like uh, um so it would be real torture if you if you were forced to have an immortal uh, soul, but that's typically the picture the name for this torture is christianity but uh um, it's a torture religion, as we all know I mean at the center is a is a dude tortured to death. I mean what's going on there but okay uh, uh um but let's bracket that torture scenario. So, uh, um, so if you think you have an immortal soul and your thoughts are you know, tested by God, are they good thoughts, right? Does he want to eat sausage? Does he want to have sex? And so forth. And you're constantly trying to hide your thoughts, but it doesn't quite work. And so, so you'll act in a certain way. All I'm saying is that if you think okay, your way to blend in is to have an immortal soul in a divine plan, then you'll act in a certain way. Now let's imagine an extreme denier of this. Let's call this fictitious person Richard Dawkins, okay? So now you have someone who says, no, absolutely no to that, right? I am just a sophisticated killer ape trying to spread his genes. So a good way to do this is become professor of biology at Oxford and write <laughs> popular books, which will hopefully, hopefully attract some uh, mating partners. So, uh, um, so if that's what you believe, right, then you'll act in different ways. I don't want to spell out what this uh, entails and what the best way then of you know, carrying out your plan would be. But you see, you'll do different things. Yeah? Now, the important fact about human-mindedness is the following. Regardless of the truth or falsity of your account of how you blend in, you will become different. You can change the way you are by having false beliefs about yourself. My uh, favorite example of this is, as uh, some of you might know, uh, a self-deluded tango dancer. So imagine someone like me who's not capable of Uh, dance in tango, but I would like to be a great tango dancer. So I start convincing myself that I'm like a hidden tango champion, right? Uh, And at some point or other, this conviction turns into bad reality. You know, I start traveling to Buenos Aires. I try to dance with everyone. No one wants to dance with me, et cetera, because I'm such a terrible dancer. The whole show is embarrassing. However, I start believing this, right? So I turn into a self-deluded tango dancer, So, if I have a false belief about myself and how I blend in, I change, I become self-deluded. If I have a true belief about myself, I also change, I might become enlightened. Now, that case differs substantially from the case of, say, the mass of overall mass of fermions in the known universe. Regardless of my true or false belief about it, they are just facts of the matter, and they don't change in virtue of my false beliefs about them. Okay, so I clearly have false beliefs about fermions. I'm not a physicist. I know some things about fermions. If you push me a little bit, you'll notice that I clearly have some false beliefs about them. Actually, everyone has false beliefs about fermions because we haven't fully figured them out. But be that as it may, okay, my false beliefs about them don't change them. It's not like, damn, You know, the mass of fermions in the universe just changed because Gabriel has false beliefs about them, okay? They're not affected by my false beliefs. But I'm affected about my false beliefs. For instance, if I have a false belief and stick to it, I might make a mistake, right? I I take the wrong tube, for instance, right? So you can see that the human mind is precisely this, living a life in light of your conception of who or what you are. And now I will conclude, okay, with a little m- bit more substance. So two more moves, and then we open this for Q&A, okay? So the first move is a distinction between what I call a first-order and a second-order anthropology. An anthropology is an answer to the question how the human mind blends into reality, or how we are part of reality, okay? An account that the human gives of itself. Uh, that's an anthropology. A first-order anthropology Identifies something in reality, okay, and says that this is you. For instance, your brain, your immortal soul, whatever, right, your whole body, whatever you think you are, a bunch of molecules arranged Marcus Gabriel wise, whatever you think you are, right, if you pick something out in reality and say that is me, you'll have a first order anthropology. A second order anthropology is leading your life in light of your knowledge that being human is leading a life in light of an anthropology, okay? You just go one level up. So people have beliefs about what they are, immortal soul, not immortal soul, okay? Dawkins versus the Pope. Uh, They have beliefs about what they are and they act accordingly, right? And now they are in opposition, maybe even in war. If they could, they would kill each other, right? Uh, uh, Currently they can't, Uh, it's not the Middle Ages. Uh, uh, Dawkins is lucky. In the Middle Ages, he would be gone. Um, and uh, Dawkins is not powerful enough to kill the Pope, so it's a standoff for the time being. Uh, um, but you see, they are on the same space in an opposition, right? But they have something in common. They're both self-deluded, okay? In this case, because uh, both lead their life in light of a conception of what it is to lead a life. They are self-steering animals, but they have different models of what they are, okay? So that's the first order anthropology. But they have something in common. Okay, I just gave you the structure that they have in common, namely this structure of leading one's life in light of a conception of what the human being is. Now, if that is the human being, the capacity to lead such a life, then you are able to lead your life in light of that conception. Okay? You lead a life in light of the following norm. Be human. Now, what does this norm mean? Well, I just told you lead a self-determining life. So if you take that structure okay, as your mode of compartment, as your model, you are a humanist. I am a humanist because that's what humanists do. Okay? Humanists lead their life in light of just a conception of the human that is universal across all humans. On this level that I'm characterizing, there's no distinction across humans. There is no different humanity realized by Chinese people and Russian people and German people or whatever. They are literally all the same kind of animal, self-determining animals. They're different delusions, right? German, uh, German delusions differ from Russian delusions, <laughs> right? So uh, uh, Germany is deluded in a different way from Russia. But the fact that both can be deluded okay, is the same fact the fact of humanity, right? So the recommendation is to integrate that insight into the constitution of human-mindedness into our agency, and then we'll all be free. Okay, good. So that's uh, one comment. And the second comment is this. Okay, the perspective that I'm characterizing allows you to classify views about humanity itself as pathological. So I literally believe that thinking that you are a sophisticated killer killer ape designed to spread your genes and everything you do is nothing but an attempt to get a mating partner, however sophisticated it looks to yourself, blah, 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 right? I think this is is a form of pathological account of what you are. But you're not doing any better if you think that you have an immortal soul sent down into a body to be proven by God, etc. That is, again, a pathology. And I think that the typical options in so-called philosophy of mind okay, are indirect, so that's the big claim. Um, I will not fully justify it. I will just give you the claim and then open this for Q&A. They are indirect expressions of pathological accounts of humanity. Uh, so if you wonder how the mind hangs together with the brain, and really the background of your theorizing is nonsense, you're very likely to really be expressing your own self-delusion in the form of what looks like theory. And unfortunately, this is a very widespread phenomenon in philosophy, and I came here to enlighten you, and I hope you could follow the outline of the argument. Thank you for your attention.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.